0: Trying to forget my feelings of love. We here at Radio Parallax do not know whether the Google artificial intelligence program Lambda actually has feelings. But Google engineer Blake Lemoyne is convinced it does. Said Lemoyne, I know a person when I talk to it. It doesn't matter whether they have a brain made of meat in their head or they have a billion lines of code. That did not necessarily represent the opinion of Radio Parallax, KDVS, the Regency University, their sponsors, or most other people that work at Google. Evidently, Mr. Lemoyne fell under Lambda's spell when he began asking the software about its feelings, and it confessed that it sometimes feels lonely. We plan to bring... In the weeks to come, back to the program our artificial intelligence computer scientist Don Rose to talk about this very topic. In my preliminary talks with Mr. Rose about coming on this program, he was as surprised as I to learn that, according to the Week magazine, citing the Washington Post, LeMoyne had been placed on suspension after seven years at Google once he attempted to hire a lawyer to represent Lambda and sending executives a document that he claimed proved that the AI was sentient. Don's going to try to make arrangements to have us talk to that lawyer because we think he'd be a good person to speak with. And who knows, maybe we'll be able to speak to the AI directly to see if it does indeed have... See? Before we get too far in this program, we'd like to mention that in our second half today, we're going to devote at least a half an hour to a talk with Stephen J. Harper, Trump expert and professor of law at Northwestern University, because uh, he's, like us, has been intrigued by these hearings going on in Washington regarding the January 6th attempt to overthrow the government of the U.S. And, uh, well, you're going to want to stay tuned for that. On last week's show, we opened up early with the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think we'll do the same this week, Mr. McMillan. According to the week, it was a good week last week for Dylanology. Unbeknownst to us, last month in May, the Bob Dylan Center opened in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Why Tulsa, you ask? We don't know. Although Ms. Rimmel says, why not? Yes, apparently the public is not going to be given access to the Rock Legends' personal archives. It's counted its holdings, its holdings at more than 100,000 items. The $10 million facility, housed in a former warehouse two doors down from the Woody Guthrie Center, now, Woody Guthrie, I understand, but anyway, is packed with Bobalia, it is said. I guess it'd be Bobalia. This includes performance footage, bootleg recordings, correspondence, and, and, ladies and gentlemen, the leather jacket that Dylan wore when he went electric at the 1965 Newport Folk Festival. Now, we know a lot of you out there are are fans of, of the winner of the Nobel Prize in Literature, Mr. Bob Dylan. So, if you've had a chance to visit this museum or plan to, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for deja vu with some grimly familiar advice from the CDC, which is that people engaged in hookups should avoid kissing and consider virtual sex in order to avoid contracting monkeypox. We assume that the recommendation to engage in virtual sex refers to people and has nothing to do with monkeys. We, God, we hope so. And it was an ugly week, surely an ugly week for both soccer fans and people who would like to visit Qatar, with the news that that nation, the nation described as the repressive host nation of this year's Soccer World Cup, is telling foreign fans they must refrain from drinking and public displays of affection. Said a Qatari official, it's not part of our culture, and that goes across the board to everyone. Well, as much as soccer fans and the players themselves, I'm sure, look forward to playing soccer in 105 degree heat. It looks like cold beer is out. Frankly, I think what should be out is the fact that Qatar is getting to host the World Soccer Cup. That's another story. We've gotten away from doing science on this program in recent weeks, and I think we need to correct that with a few scientifically related items, starting with the fact that if you go out before dawn and look up in the sky, you're going to see an unusual alignment of the planets. And apologies to listeners for not having mentioned this earlier, uh, but the truth of the matter is most of the sources are saying you really need to see this on June 24th because the moon will be between Venus and Mars, and, and it was. But believe me, you can still go out over the next, uh, well, I don't know, many days, maybe weeks, and see Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn in order in the eastern sky before dawn. And it, it looks pretty cool. If you haven't done it, think about doing so. You got to get up at 5 a.m., though, before the sun rises. Anyway, that, that's a bit of good news. Free show up in the sky. Another item of good news we have to report is the fact that the amount of plastic litter on Australia's beaches has apparently fallen almost 30 percent over the last year, six years, according to a survey. This decline apparently reflects local council initiatives, although some places have evidently fared a lot better than others. And we mentioned a couple years back that uh, someone had fed styrofoam to beetles, and uh, they were able to metabolize it. There's some news on that front, and I'm sure you've been waiting for it. Scientists have apparently identified some of the bacteria in the guts of these larvae of the darkling beetles that is allowing them to metabolize and get some nutrition from the styrofoam. You bacteriologists will take heart to know that Pseudomonas aeruginosa, that old standby, is being joined by Rhodococcus, Carinibacterium, and Sphingobacterium groups in producing enzymes called hydrolases that evidently allow the beetle to degrade the plastic and incorporate it into their bodies. Now, they're getting some nutrition from the styrofoam, but the scientists note that polystyrene is definitely a poor diet. That comes from co-author Christian Rink from the University of Queensland in Australia, where the beaches are cleaner than ever. But he notes the worms can survive it. When the time came for metamorphosis, 67% of the plastic-munching worms were successful in pupating. And of course, if scientists can pinpoint the exact enzymes that they are being used to break down the plastic, they may be able to uh, use that in recycling facilities. We hope so. If you intend to do some of this on your own, do note that the larva of the darkling beetle's feces will change from light brown to white. Don't be alarmed. That's normal. In other items related to nutrition, we have a a piece from New Scientist magazine about the science of gardening, talking about how uh, even small vegetable patches can benefit from crop rotation. There's one paragraph in the article that struck me. It said, when British farms adopted a four-year crop rotation of wheat, turnips, barley, and clover in the 1700s, it boosted productivity so much that it led to a population boom. And the key was introducing clover, which being a legume, has root bacteria that can turn nitrogen from the air into compounds for the plants to use, and thus boost soil fertility. Now, it just so happens I was harvesting from my own garden some peas and string beans yesterday, and this article points out that if I just leave the uh, stems back on the ground, I'll be doing some fertilization effortlessly. When it comes to gardening, anything that's effortless should be seized upon. The Economist sounded off on on some issues related to... uh, food in its last issue notes that most of the world's grain is not eaten by humans there's currently a grain shortage underway thanks to the war going on in ukraine the piece notes that ironically one of the most effective ways for individual consumers to alleviate the world's grain shortage is to eat more grain at the expense of meat evidently 43 percent of the world's grains are either burned as biofuel good lord or used to feed animals That amounts to six times the grain output of Ukraine and Russia combined. The piece notes that a lot of grain byproducts, like maize, husks, or corn husks to you and me, are unsuitable for food, for humans anyway. And feeding grains to animals does generate food for people indirectly in the form of milk, meat, and eggs. But this process is highly wasteful. Here's a stat for you. For every 100 calories of grain fed to a cow, three emerge as beef. And of course, for reasons we don't quite understand, they keep making biofuel from grains. Here's some uh, startling items from space. They've studied this, at least some people have, and they've concluded that solar storms may cause thousands of heart-related deaths on Earth. Of course, keep in mind, this is a a headline that has may in it, which pretty much opens the door to anything. But, But nevertheless, scientists at Harvard evidently studied health records. In the United States and compared them to the timing of solar storm data and found that more heart disease deaths occurred on days when solar storms had disturbed the earth's magnetic field. And of course our hearts do depend upon electrical activity to function properly and so this is theoretically possible that when the sun's spewing out charged particles and it's hitting the earth's atmosphere that might have an effect on our hearts. These scientists are taking a look at it and saying the data is suggestive and of course more research is needed, but holy mackerel. And speaking of holy mackerel, scientists studying Jupiter noted that there was a huge explosion in October of 2021, the brightest one since comet Shoemaker-Levy smashed into the planet back in 1994 now they have seen some, some large impacts on Jupiter since then, but they've now, uh, the Japanese anyway, some scientists, have set up a ground-based observatory which is dedicated to looking for exactly that. And that collision last October produced the equivalent energy of 2 million tons of TNT. I think the largest atomic device, thermonuclear device ever blown off that was done by the Russians, it was something like 100 megatons. Here we're talking about 2 million megatons. If that thing had hit the Earth, it would have been a bad day. And we have this, also from a New Scientist, that frankly has me scratching my head. Here's the story The first global survey of marine RNA viruses, which is, you know, something like COVID, have found thousands of new ones. Okay. Some of these evidently play a key role in locking away carbon. Yes, evidently researchers at Ohio State University, including Guillermo Dominguez Huerta, has taken a look between 2009 and 2012 of seawater samples and plucked out the RNA viruses present in the water. They identified more than 5,000 types, almost all of them new to science. The team looked at the role some of these RNA viruses play in carbon sequestration. Of course, every day, tons of uh, dead plankton sink to the bottom of our ocean, and they take carbon with them, and that can be locked up for millions of years, which would be pretty handy. This carbon pump is estimated to store as much as 12 gigatons of carbon annually, which is about a third of what we humans are uh, releasing in emissions every year, which is a help. At least 11 of these new viruses are thought to infect plankton that are important in that carbon pump. Now, what I don't understand is how the viruses are accelerating or impeding the pump, except to say that if the virus attacks a back- or plankton and kills it, it sinks to the bottom. I guess it's speeding things up, I guess. Anyway, this is another area where more research is needed and could prove very useful. I'm also glad to note that uh, whale watching is becoming more and more popular. People are going down to Mexico to uh, San Ignacio and going out in little boats and having the whales come up to them where they can pet them. We're not completely convinced that petting a whale is a good idea, but uh, keeps people interested and in wanting to keep the tourist attraction going. Well, that's probably good. As recently as something like 50 years ago, when whales were seen passing Monterey Bay, they, ships would go out and kill them. After all, there's money to be made from whale oil. I do want to note that I had a chance to visit Half Moon Bay last week and was quite quite pleased to note that... Right off the beach, there was a bait ball out in the ocean. The, the, the seabirds were having a field day. So were dolphins, so were seals, and so were whales. Did you pet any whales? And no, Mr. Millen, we did not pet any of them. Aww. I believe it's a crime to get within 500 feet of them. Of course, down in Mexico, they get, they get around this, but letting the whales come to you. Now, my nephew, who was visiting the beach a few days later, said he was sorry that he didn't get the kayak out and go out and check out the whales. Admitted that I attempted this myself a few years back when a couple were swimming by. I made the discovery that a determined whale can definitely swim faster than I can paddle a kayak. But then again, if they've got a bait ball to work with and they're circling around and taking chomps out of it, well, there's, there may be an opportunity to do some close observations right here. We'll keep you posted on that one. A couple weeks back, Mr. McMillan urged me to talk about this guy that apparently landed an airplane when the, when the pilot passed out. I put a call into my flight instructor to say, what do you think about this, Dan? And he said, I, I, I think the guy must have had some experience along the way on some level. I myself have landed the plane something like 1,100 times, and I admit, yeah, a guy might stick it on the first try. But I just have some questions. In the meantime, this story is, I, I, I gather gotten a lot of attention from people who fly in small airplanes, thinking, well, what if that happened to me? Well, according to the Washington Post, anyone with an afternoon despair can learn to fly a small plane. That's, well, I would correct to say you might, you can learn to successfully land a small plane, or at least up your odds of successfully landing the plane. Flight schools around the country are now offering flight training, described as a roughly one hour long class that's a popular birthday gift. A joyride with bragging rights. Andrea Sachs, writing in the Washington Post, said, I signed up for my $109 session because I travel often and want to be able to land in the unlikely event the pilot ever passes out. Anyway, she went down to the Bravo flight training in Frederick, Maryland, got shown around a single-engine Cessna 172 and reviewed emergency procedures. She notes that holding the yoke with my left hand and the throttle with my right, I managed to get the aircraft airborne. Well, I did that on my first lesson in an airplane, too, and that's the easy part. According to the piece, she then practiced some basic maneuvering, turning, decelerating, raising and lowering the nose, and she notes the landing was trickier, but I got the job done. Noting that a rattle and a bounce later, the plane was firmly planted on terra firma. I have a strong suspicion that that landing was, uh, that there was a lot of commentary going on as that landing was taking place. But I would say that if you're, you're... commonly flying around in small aircraft, and you've ever worried about this, and who hasn't? This, this, this might be a, a good way to spend $109. All right, we got about five minutes left in the segment. I think I'm going to pull a piece out of The Atlantic, which unfortunately takes us back into politics, but might serve as a, a gateway to Stephen Harper in our second segment. Article of The Atlantic by Jennifer Sr. about Steve Bannon. It was titled, American Rasputin, with the the sub-headline that Steve Bannon is still scheming and he's still a threat to democracy. Turns out Bannon's a lot wackier guy than I ever realized. I don't know, dear listener, if you're aware of the fact that in April of 1994, he went off to Arizona to manage the eco-experiment Biosphere 2. One of the consequences of that is that he impregnated a woman in the biosphere and later married her. But I think I need to quote for a couple minutes from this piece, this one section that really kind of whopped me upside the head. Said Jennifer Sr. in The Atlantic, there's a scene I keep looping back to in Errol Morris's 2018 documentary about Bannon, American Dharma. Bannon is recalling his Hong Kong days in the 2000s when he was working for Internet Gaming Entertainment. He notes how stunned he was to discover how many people played multiplayer online games and how intensely they played them. But then he breaks it down for Morris, using the example of a theoretical man named Dave in Accounts Payable, who one day drops dead. Said Bannon, some preacher from a church or some guy from a funeral home who's never met him does a 10-minute eulogy. And that's Dave. But that's offline Dave. Online Dave is a different story. Dave in the game is Ajax, and Ajax is the man. Ajax gets a caisson when he dies and is carried off to a raging funeral pyre the rival group comes out and attacks. There's literally thousands of people there, Bannon says. People are home playing the game and guys are not going to work and women are not going to work because it's Ajax. Now who's more real, Bannon asks. Dave in accounting or Ajax? Bannon realized Ajax. Some people, particularly disaffected men, actively prefer and better identify with the online version of themselves. He kept this top in his mind when he took over Breitbart News and decided to build out the comments section. This became more of a community than the city they live in. He told Morris, "The key to these sites was the comments section. This could be weaponized at some point. The angry voices, properly directed, have latent political power." Said Jennifer Senior, "I mentioned this moment to Bannon the second time I spoke with him." On his program, War Room, he frequently talks about three levels of participation, the posse, the cadre, and the vanguard. It sounded to me like the gamification of politics. Yes, he told me, that's just it. I want Dave in accounting to be Ajax in his life. And she notes that's what happened on January 6th. The angry, howling hordes arrived as real-life avatars, co-playing the role of rebels in face paint, and fur. They stormed the capital while an enemy army tried to beat them away. They carried their own version of caissons. They skipped a day of work, and then they expressed outrage and utter incredulity when they got carted off. The fantasy and the reality had become one in the same. And you know, that's not exactly a complete explanation for January 6th, but God, I think it has a role to play. Bannon, of course, has been using his podcast, War Room, to get people across the country to sign up for election boards so that they can make sure it's done right in 2024. Describing Bannon's efforts to get people onto election boards, Jennifer Sr. said, This is the Democratic Party's nightmare scenario, the hobgoblin that visits at 4 a.m., The infrastructure of civil servants on the state level, which barely held the U.S. together in the aftermath of the 2020 election, comes completely undone through democratic means. She said, Bannon ranted to me one day, the left and the media, they're all about democracy. Then he broke into a smile. On November 8th, the war room and war room posse and all the little people at the school boards and things, we're going to give you democracy shoved up your ass, okay? We're going to give you a democracy suppository. Yep. That's good old lovable Steve Bannon for you. We got to take a break. Let's do so. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for our chat with Stephen J. Harper, which is bound to hold your interest. Superman.